whistleblower report exposing lies deceptions and all that has assaulted our way of life we must take back our freedom and live as god designed in a free america that honors our constitution and our creator our experts in medicine, ministry, law, military, environment, and education empower us to grow together as a nation. For such a time as this, the Whistleblower Report offers truth and solutions. Welcome to the Whistleblower Report. This is Dr. Lee for America here with the International Vaccine Report. And also today we have a very special guest, David Rogers Webb, the author of The Great Taking. Not only have the experimental gene therapy COVID shots taken your human genome as God designed it and taken your health, But we see everywhere we turn, the global powers, the global predators are seeking to take ownership of everything about you and about our lives. Everything from your mind control to privacy, to your property, to your medical freedom, your movement and travel freedom your independent financial holdings, all the way around David Rogers Webb book, The Great Taking, describes exactly what Klaus Schwab brags about. You will own nothing and you will be happy. Well, I'm here to tell you the Whistleblower Report team and Truth for Health Foundation stands against this evil And we have been speaking out against it. In fact, I've been speaking out against medical intrusions by the government and constitutional violations for most of my medical career, as many of you know. And we are not silent about what is happening to us, as well as what you can do to stand strong. Look at the inspiring images of the farmers across Europe who are blocking roadways, dumping bales of hay in front of government buildings, and even spraying manure on government buildings. I can't think of a better example of noncompliance and standing against the assault on our lives. So we are honored to have David Rogers Webb with us today, coming in from Sweden, where Dr. Jonathan Gilthorpe also lives, and Dr. Eden in the UK, and Andrea Klarich, our businessman and investigative journalist from Croatia. So welcome to the show today. Hang on to your hat. It's going to be a great one with our expert. And he's going to tell you a little bit more about his background, but basically for everyone to understand David Rogers Webb comes to us with deep experience with investigation and analysis within challenging and deceptive environments, certainly a description of what we've been living under. 
for much of the last 50 years, but especially the last four. He also has expertise in mergers and acquisitions. And what was so deceptive about the mergers and acquisitions boom of the 1980s, venture investing and the public financial markets. He has managed hedge funds throughout this period, spanning the extremes of the dot-com bubble and bust, producing a gross return of more than 320%, while the S&P 500 and the NASDAQ indices had losses. I remember those years well. I personally lost a lot of my retirement during that time. His clients have included some of the largest international institutional investors, and this gives him a unique perspective on the subtle ways that the financial markets and powers that be have been moving to subtly deprive us, deprive us of the ownership we thought we had in, our, in the financial world as well as others. So David Rogers Webb, thank you for joining us today. And I know Dr. Eden wanted to give a comment about his perspective and why your role today is so important. Dr. Eden, thank you for being with us. Sure. No, thank you as well. It's just terrific to be on, on a recording with, with, with David Webb. Thank you for coming. So, yeah, uh, many regular listeners will know that I, Dr. Mike Eden, uh, am a enforced, retired, but long-time pharmaceutical company research guy, a PhD, um, you know, toxicology, pharmacology, and so on. And so I, I uh, left Big Pharma and run a biotech and got acquired. And so I was just enjoying quiet early retirement. And so in 2020, when I started noticing various things happening on the TV, and I've been around so long, lots of the public health people were people I actually knew, was at university with or work with. And I realized early on, these people were lying to us. And that was quite a jarring shock. Anyway, we'll scroll forward through the rest of 2020. I'd reached by the, the conclusion by the end of that year that literally every single major narrative point we were being told about this virus, public health emergency, and the need for countermeasures and injections were, were lies. Every single part of it is a psyop. Now, I didn't know, I knew that these injections were by design dangerous, and I used the phrase toxic by design, I now say intentionally injurious, designed to injure, kill, and reduce fertility in survivors. And there are numerous well-identified, discrete, toxic mechanisms. Uh, I found three and friends have found another couple. So there's at least five. Uh, so I said early on, for goodness sake, don't roll your sleeves up. Something is going on. I had no idea. And there's a clever lady we're going to hear from next week uh, called Sasha Latipova, Latipova. And she's worked with Catherine Watt, an American legal uh, researcher. They identified 50 years of change to public health law that kind of makes makes the, the unlawful illegal. And so they we've been subject to an attack by the governments of, of all around the world, but I think led by America and the UK, unfortunately. And these, these injections are kind of legally... Their law, you know, they've made the unlawful legal on paper, I think Sasha calls it, and we'll hear about that next week. But I realized the conclusion was we are under attack. I had often thought when Klaus Schwab of the World Economic Forum 
would say in his thick German accent, you will have own, you will own nothing and you will be happy. It's like, how are you going to do that? And um, so just want to hand right over to David Webb. I've read his book. I uh, watched an interview with a good friend, James Dellingpole, uh, which was frankly the most frightening hour and a half I've ever listened to. And, and I also read his book. Um, and there's a lot in there. So I, the reason I wanted to make that point is that what Sasha will, um, Sasha will describe is, I would say, one arm of a twin pincer arm, which if we let it will crush the freedom out of humanity. So on the one hand, 50 years of change to public health law that allowed us to be injected by, by the authorities and they don't have to, they haven't done anything illegal, even though it's obviously more evil. And I think David's going to tell us that there's a there's this other arm set to deprive us of our property and other things. So this is not an accident. This is not an overreaction. Mistakes were not made. If anyone tells you that, it's BS. They are, the evil people have planned this together. You know, they're not lizards, but they are evil. And they've been at it for decades. It's a multi-generational thing. And I'll pause now and say thank you, honoured to be with you. And, and let's hear David's... Uh, vital and other arm of this least twin-armed attack on us. Thank you, sir. Thanks, Dr. Eden, and welcome, David Webb. We are so thrilled to have you today. So tell us a little more about your background and what led you to write the book, The Great Taking. Thank you. Thank you, Lee. I first I wanna I want to say thank you to Michael, you know, for his comments. And I I, I want to say that you know, in the dark days uh, of 2020, when this was unfolding, uh, Mike Eden was one of the very few people who had the courage to stand up. It meant an enormous amount to me personally. And um, being able to uh, be on a call with Michael is like being on a call with Eric Clapton. It's, he is one of my great heroes. So thank you, thank you, Michael, for everything you've done. So I, I guess uh, what it, what is the beginning of this for me? I, you know, I'll, I'll mention briefly. I, I, my, my, I'm trying to understand it myself. I think, I think, uh, how can you understand what is happening now? It's not from obviously not from listening to the media, what you're being told. You understand things through your personal experience, the personal experience of others, through living memory. And this is either, even multi-generational that is pointing us. So it's living memory pointing us to where we are now and who we are now. Um, a big part of... Um, I've come to understand a big part of uh, who I am now and what I'm doing really comes from my grandmother, who uh, was in our household from the time of my birth. And um, she had been a nurse in the First World War. So she um, sat by my bedside every night and talked with me in the darkness about things. And uh, you may think this is hokey, but she was preparing me for this. 
going all the way back through her life experience. Um, so she, she was a nurse. My grandfather was a surgeon. And they went into the First World War before the U.S. had even entered the war. They were in uh, Rouen, France, and they were in a facility with 3,000 beds. And if you know the scale of the carnage in these battles, they had more injuries every day than their capacity, the entire capacity. So it was like these scenes from Gone with the Wind and Dr. Shibago. And uh, she, uh, so they both went through this and it marked them. And, um, you know, of course, this was in the early 1960s. And she was really preparing me that life was not going to be entirely sunshine and cotton candy. <laughs> she, she, knew, she knew things. Uh, that, I think, is a big part of, you know, what, 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 has, uh, what has prepared me. Then, then in the mid-60s and later, later 60s, my father was an engineer. You know, the, my father, my grandfather, my uncle, they were just guys trying to deal with, deal with things. And um, Cleveland was a place, it was like a canary in the coal mine. We went into something with riots, the National Guard on rooftops with machine gun nests, uh, I mean, you, you, this is not something you're told about the, <laughs> what was going on in that period of time. You know, the threat of buildings being burned down, you know, uh, the Teamsters strikes, windshields being smashed. It was very heavy going. And uh, I saw, um, uh, I, I saw this stuff going on then. So, um I probably would have been a physician. That was what I was being prepared for by my grandmother, really. But I, um, I knew that uh, I could just see it was manifest what was happening. I had to understand what was happening. And so I went into business. And uh, I didn't have anyone in my family to guide me on this. I had to figure it out myself. But I... Um, I trained in finance and I did a minor in computer science and I uh, went to New York. I knew that's where I had to go. And I just started going into it and exposing myself to this at a very early age. And, you know, one thing I say is things are intimidating if you've never met them. Once you have met it, whether it's a situation or a person, the spell is broken. And that started when I was 22 or 20, 23 in, in New York. So by, by the late, um, so I, I worked in mergers and acquisitions, very, very intense, working days without sleep, sleeping on the floor when you could. Uh, I then, uh, I did that for five years. I then um, moved to what was then the biggest private equity firm in the world by a factor of 10. And um, 
I, I managed, uh, it, it, it was, it was again, a very intense experience that, uh, I ended up managing a deal that was, uh, um, uh, ended up being the largest capital gain in the history of the firm, but I had, I had to leave <laughs> because it was, it was destroying my family, what I, what we were doing or what I was doing. So I moved back to, back to Cleveland where I grew up and eventually it started again because I ended up running hedge funds there. And so I was dealing with it all again. And, um, by uh, the late 90s, uh, this was in the aftermath of the um, Asian financial crisis, I was handling all the trading and uh, I could see that even then the markets were behaving in odd ways where the market would go straight up on bad news. In other words, there was it wasn't people buying on the dip on the bad news, the market would just go straight up, things like that, that there was some hidden kind of injection happening. Um, and I started um, looking at the scale of money creation and found that the money being created by central banks was on the order of 10 times uh, whatever economic growth was occurring. Now, this meant that um, the transmission mechanism from money creation into real economic growth was actually collapsing, but people did not know that or understand that at that time. Um, prior to this point, the Asian financial crisis was really the first global crisis, financial crisis. Prior to this, there is a very high velocity. Now, what does, what does that mean, velocity? It means that if you think of, uh, if you have finite money that is tied to gold or silver, um, in order to come up with money, you have to actually do something. You have to sell something, you have to create something, you have to sell a service or a product. But then there's this power that is created by the central, when central banks <laughs> come into existence to, to create money out of nothing. And initially that is an awesome power and it has a very high velocity, meaning that when that created money is uh, uh, injected into the economy, things happen that otherwise never would have happened. Some of that's good. And what we'll get to is increasingly it's very bad what they're doing with that created money. So uh, initially projects get done and when people receive that money, they spend it. And uh, in 1980, when I did a money and banking course, it was said that uh, this turnover on created money was maybe six, seven, eight times in a year. So a very high growth in, in economic growth on top of the money creation. But what was happening in the late 90s was this had, had inverted so that the money creation was a high multiple of any economic growth resulting. And so I knew then that we were going into some kind of an end stage phenomena, end stage collapse. 
And uh, on the heels of that, we had the, uh, with the scale of money creation by the fourth quarter of uh, 1999, they were growing money at a 40% annual rate at the peak of the dot-com bubble. So about 10 times whatever economic growth could be happening. So it creates these bubbles and then, then the bust. And, um, you know, then we went into the war on terror and, uh, you know, 9-11, the war on terror. And we know things, something profoundly changed at that point. So the way I would explain it to people is when this power to create growth by creating money collapses, the money creation goes into financialization which is used in various ways strategically, and uh, then increasingly into warfare. And, and this, when you go back into the history of the central banks, they are joined at the hip with warfare. People need to understand this now, face up to this. We are in a global hybrid war. So the central banks come into existence in warfare or very closely timed with it, and then they perpetuate their power through warfare. Now, how does that happen? They, both the Bank of England, which is kind of the, the forerunner of the Fed, so that goes back 400 years in Britain. The Fed is modeled on the Bank of England. And uh, the people behind these central banks, what they do is they get politicians in the, in the government to cooperate with them. And then they um, create the central bank and they theoretically buy the debt of the government. So they finance the government, but the, what they are creating to buy the debt of the government is created out of nothing, absolutely nothing. So now they are being paid interest on this debt that they have bought from the government on money they've created out of nothing. So it is all debt-based, but out of nothing. So alternatively, the treasury of the government could have issued that directly. And then the interest being paid on the debt would essentially go to the people. It would be the people, people financing the government and people uh, paying interest on it that would go back to their own society. But in this model, all the debt that is created to finance the wars incurs interest, which is paid to these private, this private cartel that controls it. This is the source of their power. So it's done with the Bank of England and then with the Federal Reserve System just months before, less than a year before World War I. And then they use those government bonds purchased with money created out of nothing as their capital base. Theoretically, their solid capital uh, that they then pyramid up with loans to the public, which they are also collecting interest on. So this tiny cartel essentially is capturing all of the productivity, all of the energy and economic activity of the entire society and the world that goes to them. Now, you might forgive that if they were using it for benevolent purposes, 
I, I think we know they're not now. You know, this has been uh, there. Even I, when I understood this 20 years ago, I thought, well, perhaps this kind of works. Uh, they are people. They can only eat so much. They can only have so many boats. The, the whatever wealth they're accumulating is somehow recycling into the society. But what we are seeing now is that this is being used for malevolent purposes. It is anti-human. Now, what is, what is the evidence for that? I mean, if you, if you, and this is, I think what my grandmother was warning me about. If you go, if you go back a century, this has a long beginning, at least a hundred years, maybe centuries, but um, the central banks, in addition to being tied at the hip with warfare, are tied at the hip with totalitarianism, always and everywhere. They are not capitalists in the way we understand capitalism. I, I would define capitalism as the science of meeting unmet human needs sustainably, which means profitably. If it's unprofitable, you can't sustain it. So there's a real economics of finding and serving needs. There's nothing wrong with that. This is not capitalism, what these people are about. So um, uh, one of the books I've read more recently is uh, Friedrich Hayek's Road to Serfdom. This happened to be, I think, my grandfather's copy of the book that I, I just happened to get to Sweden somehow. Uh, it, was, it was printed in 1944, so before the war ended. And he is warning, even at that time, that the um, the economic uh, the leaders in economic thought in Britain uh, were essentially the same people as the people behind the totalitarian movements, same people in ideology. So he was warning about the Fabians, and um, um, he he. Um, he is uh, pointing out that this this uh, they they have a um, an assertion that uh, things have to be centrally planned, centrally run, and uh, the, this is unexamined that the, this makes any sense. He he makes the point that the real world is so complex that especially if your goal is to meet human needs, it must be allowed to, uh, you have to have autonomous units, individuals, organizations that can reorganize to meet those needs. But the objective of central planning is not to meet human needs. It's about something else entirely. And we have to face up to that. So. This is an undercurrent beginning in the latter 19th century. There's a long beginning to this under uh, socialism, communism, national socialism, and directly into the Fabian Society and literally the London School of Economics and, and people like Tony Blair and Gordon Brown. They are all part of the same thing. 
Um, I think people in the United States have been largely naive about this and have not not understood that this could be real, but it but it is. Um, so what is happening? I'll now shift to what is happening in in terms of my area of of expertise or deep research. So um, for 400 years, securities, stocks and bonds, think stocks and bonds, were personal property. There's no doubt about it. That was stable. And if a, a broker or custodian failed, you would say, I'm sorry you're out of business. Here's where you can deliver my stuff. And if they did not do that, that was criminal theft plain as day, it was yours. This has been entirely subverted globally now. And that's why it's go-to time at this point. It's all in place. So what they did beginning in 19 with, with well, there's a longer beginning than this. They, they, they fabricated a paperwork crisis in the late 1960s um, to create the rationale that all securities had to be dematerialized. Um, there's a uh, you know, very clear history to that, that uh, this was a CIA operation. The establishment of the Depository Trust Corp in the US was a CIA operation. Um, um, so it began with the dematerialization, but that alone, is not necessarily a problem because in Sweden was there was a point where all G30 nations were were urged to dematerialize and Sweden likes to do things the first the bestest and they they did it but they never imagined that the purpose was not to provide property rights to people so they did things were held in electronic form but it was very clear who owned what um so there, there, there was a next step that was required to sever the property rights. And that was the creation of something called a security entitlement. This again, this was a concept that had never existed in 400 years of securities law. Well, David, what let's talk about that in the second half, because oh. I, I'd like to have you uh, lead into that and we need to take a brief break. But I'd also like to ask you if you would, for some of our listeners who may not know the term, let's start off the second half and have you define dematerializing stocks. I, I understand what you're talking about, but not everyone may fully understand what that transition involved yeah. and, and why it's so severe in terms of what's happening now. And then they explain this step about severing property rights, because okay. I think that's a critical point that very few people really understand. So let's, let's pick that up with the second half. This is Dr. Lee for America with the whistleblower report here with our guest, David Rogers Webb, talking about how everything you think you own actually is being taken from us with changes in laws that have been going on without our awareness over the last 50 to 100 years. 
And for those in America, especially, this has been increasingly evident with things that have usurped our constitutional rights on many fronts. But David Rogers Webb discussion about the way in which your private property rights and your financial property rights are being eroded and taken in ways you don't even realize is truly ominous and something we all need to stand up and be aware of and fight back against. We'll be right back after the break. Check out our website, truthforhealth.org. Check out the new Truth For Health store at truthforhealthstore.com. We have exclusive professional formulas with exciting new products, including True Mitochondrial Boost that can help improve your energy, memory, focus, and concentration. All of our products are manufactured in certified compliant facility using good manufacturing practices approved and inspected by the FDA. Check us out, www.truthforhealthstore.com. Welcome back to the second half of the Whistleblower Report. This is Dr. Lee for America with our international team, Dr. Eden, Dr. Gilthorpe, Andrea Klarich, and our special guest, David Rogers Webb, author of The Great Taking. And before the break, David was talking with us about how gradually our individual ownership of financial instruments, such as stocks, has been eroded and people are not aware of what's really been happening. David, if you would, for our listeners, define the term dematerialization of stocks, what that means for people, and then let's go into your explanation of how they have gradually, deceptively, and surreptitiously severed property rights. Okay, so dematerialization was a necessary precondition. So prior to this, um, there were physical certificates. And what that meant was there was a bright line in terms of putting something under the control of another entity. So the, there, there is this legal concept of control. Uh, so when a fiscal certificate was delivered to a broker into custody, it was signed over. And there was, uh, for example, if you were going to borrow against that certificate to leverage it, there would be an agreement. There was a bright line in terms of when you were allowing that to be used as collateral. By dematerializing, it means that um, uh, essentially all securities are, are in what's called an indirect holds, holding system. They're electronic representations. It's a book entry system. And what that does is it creates 
a situation where control of the securities, legal control, is always in the hands of uh, some other entity. Uh, it, it, it creates a situation where legal control can be fuzzy or can be made very clear that the, the uh, original owner no longer has legal control of the security, which would have been the case if you're holding a paper certificate. So, you know, as I was saying in Sweden, it was done the right way in that even in the electronic representation, there was specific rep um, identification of the security to the holder. That has been severed. But the, the um, main thing is that they worked at, um, so, so I would say the, the securities industry, the financial complex was taking these pools of um, dematerialized or electronic representations of the ownership of the securities um, the, these, these pools are in the United States at Depository Trust Corp, which was created in the mid-1970s. Um, there was this paperwork crisis that I believe was completely artificial in beginning in 1968. Um, and uh, DTCC did not begin operation until the mid-70s. There wasn't any significant degree of dematerialization for another 10 years, but somehow the, the financial system continued to function with paper certificates, but they had created the rationale for this. So the all securities, DTCC holds essentially all securities for the entire U.S. financial system, and of course for any investors outside of the U.S. that hold securities that are issued in the United States, that are registered in the United States. So it's really the underpinning for the bulk of the, the global financial system. So the securities are held in pooled form. Now, you may have know these stories about the goldsmiths in the Middle Ages that, that uh, the public left their gold with these goldsmiths because they had safes and guards and the goldsmiths uh, then realized, well, the clients don't come back for the gold, so we'll just use it. And uh, so they were loaning out the gold. And this was the beginning of a kind of fractional reserve banking. Well, what's happened with the pooling of all these securities is that they were loaning out these securities as collateral unbeknownst to the public or the clients. Essentially, it's fraud. It's being done illegally. And then they had to catch the law up to what they were actually doing. So they worked on revising the Uniform Commercial Code in the United States, which is done in state law. Now, the advantage of this to them was that it required no attention at the federal level. It could be done quietly. It's basically done as a recommendation of the industry. And uh, so it was, it was implemented state by state through the 1990s. The very, this is absolutely foundational to what they've done. So 
the uh, they introduced this concept of a security entitlement, which had never existed before. And this converts ownership, solid ownership, into a contractual claim. So what you have is the you know, owner of a stock or bond is a security entitlement. You are a beneficial owner, as they call it, which really means an appearance of ownership. So you can buy it, you can sell it, you can you are paid the dividends, you are sent a proxy statement, but the legal owner is the entity that controls it as collateral. And by the through the dematerialization, all of these securities are now controlled as collateral all the time by the custodians and the financial system, not by the beneficial owners. So this, this was the purpose. It was to catch up with what they were already doing to make it legal what they were already doing. Um, and um, now how do, how do we know that this is the case? This, is, this, this sounds like crazy talk. People have difficulty believing it, but what was happening uh, was implemented first in the US in the 90s. And then a process began after the dot-com bubble and bust to force harmonization globally to this law, uh, severing property rights uh, to financial collateral, to securities. So it began in the early 2000s um, with um, pressuring Europe to do this. And the problem in Europe was that national law wouldn't allow it because it's an ancient principle that the law of the place governs the property. And in local law, it was not possible for them to take the collateral and use it without an express written agreement. So they, they worked on this for um, quite a long time. And it was ultimately implemented in Europe with a um, something that is called the Central Securities Depository Regulation, CSDR, in 2014. So it took them about a dozen years to figure out how to subvert this there. And But the, the pressure on Europe and the world to do this was led by the State Department of the United States. The Department of State is the most powerful executive function in the world. Um, so it's an important point I'm making to you. The beginnings of this in um, the uh, uh, dematerialization, the, the, the establishment of DTCC, the CIA was running that. <laughs> That's how, I, and I, if you want to talk about this, I can go into the, the reason for that, the reasons for that. You can look at the memoirs of Bob Denser, who was the CEO of DTC and a very, very interesting history. He had no background in banking and finance at all. And, uh, but he was a CIA operative 
from an. No, I think it'd be very interesting to for our listeners to understand why the CIA. What? Well, I'll go. I'll go into that. So, so this paperwork. I'll go into the timeline chronologically. So, Bobby Kennedy is assassinated, and six days later, the banking crisis or the paperwork crisis begins on Wall Street. And they close the New York Stock Exchange every Wednesday for the next six months. So from June through the end of the year, and then magically they don't need to do that anymore. And they paid the brokers special bonuses so they would not be upset by this closing of the exchange every Wednesday. It was just for six months. Now, Bob Denser in his own memoirs says, uh, that he was uh, he began working for the CIA out of college. They arranged his draft deferment. He went to Europe to organize student anti-communist student organizations. He then worked explicitly for the CIA for six years. He then went to went into U.S. aid, which is a, basically a CIA operation in Latin America, doing lovely work down there. I'm sure. And then he, um, he explicitly says in his memoirs, his interest shifted back to the U.S. following the assassinations. Referring to Martin Luther King assassinated 60 days later, Bobby Kennedy is assassinated and this begins and he comes back. He is then appointed superintendent of banks in New York State, having no background at all in business, finance, economics, banking, none. And uh, from that position, he is then made CEO of the to be created Depository Trust Corporation. So this is a CIA operation from the beginning. We need, we need to understand that. <laughs> and so there is a geopolitical strategy behind this. And then the, so, so the dematerialization depository trust corp, that is all a creature of this. And then the, the uh, efforts to harmonize this globally were run by the State Department. Now, the, the important thing here, the, these things are joined at the hip with the Federal Reserve System, the central banks. This is not the Russians. It's not the communists. These are the, it, it, or the, the Chinese. It's the people at the, at the very center of the system in the United States that have been running this globally. People need to understand that, not get confused about that. So I don't know, where, where should I go from here? <laughs> well, I, I think what would really be helpful from here, I mean, obviously we really need to encourage everyone to read the, the depth of the explanations in your book, The Great Taking, but what, what is most critical for people to know right now about your ideas on how does the average person begin to try and protect themselves? Mm. Mm. Um, 
Well, I it's just occurred to me, I think I should get another point in here. Okay. No, go uh, right ahead. Which, which is, how do we know this? I started to talk about this. How do we know this? Because it sounds like crazy talk. You know, it sounds so unbelievable. But when they were forcing this harmonization, when they were putting pressure on Europe to conform to this, there was something formed in Europe in the EU in 2004 called the Legal Certainty Group. And what they meant by legal certainty, and it's clear in the documents around this, was making it legally certain that the secured creditors have control of the collateral in these pools and can take the collateral in the event of a failure or insolvency. So that's what the legal certainty group was. And they then wrote a detailed questionnaire to the, the Federal Reserve, which was answered by lawyers at the New York Fed, which is the really the Fed. Now, they're regional banks, but the real business end of the Fed is the New York Fed, always has been. So this is from the horse's mouth, the response to this letter. So this is a primary source document that is absolutely irrefutable. This is not conjecture, not conspiracy theory. It's so important I included it in its entirety as an appendix to the book. But I pull excerpts out of that to quotes, direct quotes to explain it. And what you see here is the explanation that in the that all securities are pooled and uh, the the owner, the beneficial owner has no right to take back their securities in the event of insolvency of the custodian. They are only entitled to a pro rata share of what remains in the pool while the secured creditors have an immediate priority interest to take the securities in the pool ahead of the investors. Um, and this is a very important point. The Fed makes it clear twice that even if the account is segregated, that makes no difference. They are still subject to the priority claim of the secured creditors. They, are, they will still only get a uh, a pro rata share of what remains after the secured creditors take the securities out of the pool. So even sophisticated investors, pension funds, it, it is systemic. So it's not just the, you know, the, the little guys, the IRAs, your 401k. No, this is the entire system is subject to this. And I, I know from my own experience in confronting people within the system and all the way to the top of the system that they do not want to know this because it's bad for business. They're not going to tell you. They will not face up to it. But it is absolutely the case. That's why it is so important to know what you know. Look at that document and know that this is not conjecture. Now, what? what you know, can... David, one of the things that that as a physician, 
I've been telling patients throughout the last four years, because that came out very early in March of 2020, um, swinging about the fact that we were being lied to and we were being denied access to treatment for this viral illness. But what I've been telling patients is that you need to start looking at ways of becoming your own physician. And we can, we can actually teach people how to better do that. So it sounds to me like you're actually bringing up a critical point about people don't just need to become their own physician to take care of their physical health. They need to become their own physician to take care of their financial health as well. Yeah, well, this is, you know, when I wrote this book, it's not an investment advice book. That's for sure. No, I, I, I understand that. I understand, but I, I'm ready. I'm ready to speak to what you're saying. It's it is about something so big um, that it is really spiritual. What we're dealing with, yes, this, not not just about you know this. Not really a self help book. This is about facing up to this so i'll talk about the that cataclysmic right. battle between good and evil it is absolute it, evil yeah it is it is a battle against totalitarianism if you want to put it in human terms uh it of uh, uh, centralized control it's ancient in uh in in it began with city-states you know, once you get beyond uh, villages, <laughs> it started happening. So, so it always it always fails. Totalitarianism doesn't work. It's because uh, uh, the world's too complex for that to work. But but anyway, this is the getting to the self help issue. This is what has happened. Fairly early on, I was contacted by um, people that are you know, billionaires, they're managing enormous amounts of money, and they were reading this and um, circulating in their networks. This has been thoroughly vetted. People all the way to the top of the system know that this is true when they look at it. it, 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 it uh, it's irrefutable. And now I'm getting to your question. What happens is the first response, even among these people that you would think are, you know, very powerful people, their first response is, how can I run? How can I hide? How can I protect myself? And my answer to them is, you can't. That's how serious this is. We have to, we have to stop it. It's as simple as that. Now that's very difficult for people to imagine, um, but we have to. We are we are all in uh, subject to some kind of mind trick, where we don't believe we can. Uh, we we think we're powerless, including these people that you would think hold all the marbles that are very very wealthy people. They also believe they are powerless. We have to pass through that to realize that you know there there it's a very very tiny group of people that are running this thing um and and in a way this is a gift to us 
that this is so manifest, so black and white. And I, I can talk about that a little bit more, how clear it is in the law that, that they have damned themselves with their own documents because this is irrefutable. And knowledge of this unites people literally globally and all the way to the top of the system once people know this. And it's unlike anything in human history in that way. It's come to that point, this, this insane drive to control everyone everywhere. We've come to a point where all of humanity can unite against this. Divide and rule will not work. So that's what we have to do. Now I can talk about the the little things that, that one can do to, as I say, be not the first to fall. But even that is a difficult thing. It's a very personal decision about what to do. I personally reached the conclusion I, I, I'm not going to run anymore. You know, there's no point. It's time to face up to this and do everything we can. Um, but, you know, I... Again, it's a difficult thing to talk about. I and I, uh, but, but, um, you know, I say to people, many people are in debt, all their neighbors are in debt. Um, taking things through the mechanism of indebtedness is ancient. It's better not to be in debt. But they've worked at this for so long that people may not be able to get out of debt. And so I first say to people, don't do anything that will destroy your happiness, your marriage, the happiness of your children for financial reasons. We're going to have to get through this together. So don't panic and, you know, insist on selling your house and, and wrecking your family. You have to, you have to be careful about this because we, we have a number of years to get through here that are going to be very difficult. If you're in a good place to get through it, you know, maybe you should just stay there. So, but, but if, um, if it is possible for a per, let's say if a person has financial assets, they have stocks and bonds in the market and they also have debt. Why would you stay in that position? You sell things, you pay off all your debts. You know, so a, a first step, if it's possible to do, is to eliminate all indebtedness. I know people that have sold their homes and are renting, for example, things like that. Um, the next thing is to be, think about your physical reality. We are in a war. There's no doubt about it. This is a global hybrid war. It is likely to intensify. And so you have to be prepared for disruptions. Um, I noted, uh, I remember standing in the basement with my dad and there was this room, the house was built in 1958. And there we had this room that uh, square room shelves all the way around it, fairly large. And my mother dutifully organized all the cans in there and rotated them. And I asked my dad when we were standing there, why do we have this? This was now in the late 60s. And he said, well, people used to think you should have about a year's supply of food in the house. 
And of course, being the late 1960s, I thought that is insane. Why? And he said, well, it's an old idea. Uh, you, you, why would you do it? Well, you could get sick, you could lose your job, and then you'd be all right. Your family would be all right. Now, he didn't mention this, but especially if you owned your house outright, if you didn't have debt. And then later, I noted, I noted that my grandfather's house that he built had the same sort of room in that house. So it was, it was, this isn't a crazy thing to have a pantry. And, um, um, you know, if it's possible to produce your own food or a portion of it, or be in an area where people are producing food, that's a very good idea. Um, I, uh, so I, I think, you know, people, people, you know, want to know, should they, should they buy gold and Bitcoin and things like that? Well, you can't eat those things. <laughs> so you take, take care of first things first. Um, uh, um, I, I would say don't put everything in any one thing when it comes to investments, um, because any one of these things can be attacked, uh, or confiscated. Uh, so, um, you diversify in ways that you've really perhaps not contemplated before. I had a, a friend here in Sweden who inherited quite a bit and he had put it, he had studied modern portfolio theory and put it all in a diversified portfolio of stocks. And after he saw me talk about this subject, he realized what he had really done is he, he, he had now had a monolithic risk. While he held a hundred different stocks, they were all subject to the same risk of loss. So you have to think about your um, uh, true diversification into different things. Um, but ultimately, uh, the long you know, if they're able to keep running things, they will eventually get that get around to everything. We can see it: ownership of land, uh, everything. So. You know, what we saw in the 1930s, um, uh, Ed, Ed Griffin in Creature for Jekyll Island or from Jekyll Island, he, he, he has gone into the memoirs of the people that were present at the planning for the Federal Reserve. And um, their chief concern was that the, uh, the growth in banking in the United States was outside their control. The fastest growing areas in banking were in the Western and Southern banks. And then US industry was largely self-financing. Self so it did not need their credit. So they were losing share and control. So they, if you follow the timeline, they, they, uh, created the 1907 financial crisis, which created the rationale that something had to be done to reform the banking system. Then they, they planned this in 1910. It was enacted in 1913. Eight or nine months later, the First World War began, and that cemented the whole thing. And then, then there was the, the uh, boom and bust in the 30s. Now, what did they achieve by that? It's hard to hard to accept this, perhaps, but 
I mean, people that lived through it would know this. They literally destroyed the economy and consolidated their complete control by doing that. So they put out of business literally every single one of their competitors. 9,000 banks were closed and not allowed to reopen. Only banks within the Federal Reserve System were allowed to reopen. They also then confiscated the gold held by the public, not because they were going to use it, because they did not want the public to be able to carry on with use of gold for commerce. So when they do these things, it is comprehensive. They, and that's why it has taken this period of time for them to get to the point where they believe they have a shot at doing this globally. And so they do not want people to have a parallel way of a parallel system, a parallel way of carrying on. They want people to be forced into central bank digital currency or things that they indirectly control in the same way. You know, the thinking Whitney Webb has written about this, that at least in the United States, they're probably moving toward a stable coin, which is basically just uh, uh, a token backed by treasuries, which is again, their model debt-based. And that token will be, um, yet will, will be uh, something that can be used by uh, financial service providers, but like the shutdown of social media during Corona, the complete control of that, the central bank power will have control to like the CBDC, even, even though these different products, financial products hung off of this stable coin will seem to be private sector products, they will have pervasive control on the use, as they say, the use of that expression of central bank liquidity. So that's, they, they won't allow alternatives to that. I think that's where it's going. Well, you know, David, I, I think we we would like to continue this discussion if you have more time and we can actually make it part two of, of the whistleblower report on the great taking, because I know members of our team have comments. And I actually think that what you're talking about is exactly their goal. But I think they may be underestimating the power of the resistance of people that we're seeing globally, which is actually very inspiring. Yes. If you have a little more time, why don't yeah. we conclude part one here and come back with part two of our show and have further discussion from the perspective of the different members of our team? Great. Let's do that. Okay, this is Dr. Lee for America with the ending of part one of the whistleblower report on the great taking with our guest, David Rogers Webb. And I'd like to encourage all of you to tune in for part two coming up next. And in the meantime, sign up for our email alerts at truthforhealth.org 
and we will be bringing you many steps to improve your health, resilience, independence, and to stand against the global tyranny that is assaulting us all. Stay tuned for part two coming up.